Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 2. I had planned to continue in Acts 27, our study on how to make it to shore, and uh, Lord willing, we'll do that next week. But uh, based on some questions in the Sunday school hour, and just things that are going on in Christianity, um, I believe it's the Lord has impressed me to change messages this morning, and I'm going to preach from John chapter 2. And um, is anyone here that you're kind of tired? You feel like you're a little out of it mentally today? Would you raise your hands? Anybody like that? <laughs> the whole church, my goodness. So every once in a while I'll say this. I try not to say it every week because it would lose its, its power. But really listen today. Because the information I'm going to give you today is who Grace Baptist Church is. It's why we're here, and it's why we're different. Anybody here notice that Grace Baptist is different than other churches? It's not because we're better. It's not because we're better people or smarter people. I am more handsome than most of the other preachers. But other than that, it's just not true, is it? It's, It's because we have a firm adherence to the Word of God. It's our only authority for faith and practice. Not only that, but we also understand history. So the old farmer said, before you tear down a fence, find out why it was put there in the first place. Isn't that good? Now, a problem that you can have are legalistic churches, all they care about are the fences. The problem with most evangelical churches is they want to remove all the fences. And neither one of those is wise. Amen? There's not wise. And so I want us to look at the Scriptures and and understand the Bible and some historical things today that identify who we are and why we take the stands that we do. And But why don't we go and ask the Lord to help us before we do that. Dear Heavenly Father, we need You so desperately today. We live in a time where doctrine is diminished, where truth is is diminished for the sake of cooperation. And Lord, it's really important that we submit to you, that we associate with those that you would have us associate with, and that we separate from those that you would have us separate from. And Lord, I pray that, uh, that we will understand better uh, who we are and why we do what we do. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we live in a time where... So so let's step back. Um, If you go all the way back to the late 1800s, everything in the world changed. There was something called, in the middle 1800s, there was a a belief that was popularized called evolution. Origin of the species by natural selection. And you know that Charles Darwin was a profound racist and that the, the core of that book would be that if you're not white, that you're an inferior race, and that through the selection process, all those other races would be diminished. The reason he believed that was he had been influenced by what's called Malthusian economics. A man named Thomas Malthus in the late 1700s came up with the idea of overpopulation. And how many of you ever heard that the world is overpopulated? Have you heard that? Has anyone ever driven across the United States? It is not overpopulated, okay? It's just a lie. You could, you could fit the entire world 
listen, you could fit the population of the entire world, give every family an acre of land in the state of Texas. We're not overpopulated. It's a silly idea. It's a completely ignorant, unscientific, silly, ignorant, ignorant idea. Just dumb. Now, there have been times when my house was overpopulated, <laughs> right? You have one bathroom and four people or whatever, and that's, that's a problem. I understand that. But we're not overpopulated. So that idea of Malthusian economics, Thomas Malthus believed that what we need to do is we need to ghettoize all of the lower classes of people and have open sewers so that they die. And then the weaker people, they go away. And by weaker, that's the less moral people, the, you know, somebody that's not of your race, that those people will die and go away. That's eugenics. That's where that concept of eugenics came from. Well, Darwin was a master eugenicist. He believed he was one of the, he came from one of the wealthiest families in the world. How many of you did not know that? That Darwin, the only way that these people can live, they can't live off of their ideas. All right, so anyone heard of Wedgwood, China? That's the fortune that Darwin was an heir to. And so he, he absolutely hated anyone that wasn't like him, and he was looking for a way to explain that, and you have evolution. Then another just completely depo- deplorable human being named Karl Marx came along. Karl Marx was so wicked, five people went to his funeral. Most of his children committed suicide. He refused to bathe. His body was covered in boils. He was a filthy animal. He was an awful, awful, wicked, evil person whose philosophies led to the death of over 100 million people. That's a bad guy. But again, he would be Barack Obama's hero and others. He's their hero, right? What happens is you have these evil ideas that influence the world. And so what you have is the influence of uh, Darwin on science. You have the the influence of Marx on uh, economics and politics. But then you also had the influence of something called higher criticism on theology. And what higher criticism did was it said the Bible isn't true historically. It's not true historically. And so what you have to do is you have to look for spiritual insight from the Bible because the Bible is not true factually. And so what that did was it influenced all of the seminaries of the world, all of them, all of them. So it's really important that you get this. I know that history is not interesting for a lot of folks, but we got to know how we got to where we are. So what happened was all of the mainline denominations. So in Catholicism, you had the influence of black, uh, ref, of black theology. And that's what they called it, black theology. It came out of South America. And anyone here of Reverend Wright in, in Chicago? So that is the, the, this black restoration theology. And it's what it is. It's a mixture of atheism, communism, and Catholicism. You know, that sounds like, you know, putting sardines in a chocolate cake. Right? It, it doesn't go together. It's like a milk bucket under a bull. It doesn't make sense. But, but that's, what, that's what this was. And so through the Jesuits, the, the, so on a separate side of it, the Jesuits became very liberal. So Georgetown University, the Jesuits in Catholicism became very liberal doctrinally. 
And so the newest pope, that's the, he, he is the first Jesuit pope. Remember when the Jesuits started, they were the army of God. They were the soldiers that would go and kill anybody that was a part of the Reformation. You know, Ignatius Loyola. If you go to Rome, you can go to St. Luke's Cathedral, and that's, that's the counter-Reformation cathedral. You can see the art where they're killing all of the Protestants in there. And so that, that's the, the liberals came into Catholicism that way. In Protestantism, it was higher criticism. And higher criticism was started by, um, the, the foundation of it was started by a man named Richard Simon. He was a French Catholic priest, and he wrote a critical history of the New Testament text in 1689. And what they started doing was undermining the authority, the historical accuracy of the Bible. Well, that higher criticism, it became the main teaching in the universities in Germany, so it came to be known as German higher criticism. The man that was behind it was a man named Hegel, Friedrich Hegel, and the, um, that might not be his first name. I didn't prepare this message. This is all from memory because I thought we needed to do it today. But Hegel started influencing the way that people thought through his dialectic. All right? Now, we all understand this by uh, practice. All right? So let me get some help. Adam, you come up here. Come right here for me. And uh, Evan, why don't you come up right here? Did I get that? Ethan? Almost right. All right, right up here. I'll just call you Ethan. Um, actually, I'm going to call you Thesis. Okay, what's your name? Thesis. Manly, right Manly, now. Manly. What's your name? Thesis. You say it? Thesis. Your name's Thesis, right? All right. No rebellion today. Just do what I tell you. Otherwise, I might become a Protestant and kill you. All right. So, what's your name? Thesis. Thesis. You're anti-thesis, antithesis, all right? Say anti-thesis. Anti-thesis. All right. <laughs> thesis, anti-thesis. So this would be the truth that the Bible is absolutely true. It's absolutely the Word of God. Is that the teaching of the Bible? Let God be true and every man a liar. Thy words are true from the beginning. All thy holy precepts I deem to be right, and I hate every false way. That's the teaching of the Scriptures. So that's thesis. That's the thesis. The antithesis is that the Bible's not right at all. There's no such thing as truth. You don't, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Everything is relative. That's the opposite of the thesis. How many of you understand so far? All right. If you're not, I'm going to start over. All right. So thesis, antithesis. The only problem is what you'll end up with there is just a war. Right? Because those two can never come together. Either you have the truth or you don't have the truth. Those are opposite teachings. So what we have to have, the word that, that Hegel would have used is a synthesis. So Luke, come up and be synthesis for me. This is the compromise. The compromiser. Right here. All right. So... What you have, this is Hegel's dialectic. You have the thesis, which is the truth of the Word of God. You have the antithesis of that, which is that there's no such thing as truth. Here's what happened in higher criticism. You had a synthesis, that there's some truth and some error in the Bible. Does that make sense? This affected every area of 
thinking, whether it's theology or science or history, it affected everything. And the idea is that there's no absolutes. We've got to come to common ground. And I love what Margaret Thatcher said. She said it about Bill Clinton, that consensus is the negation of leadership. Consensus is the negation of leadership. We don't vote on truth. We submit to truth. This synthesis is the voting on truth. What can we come to that we can all agree on? Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And it was merely Christian. It was the lowest common denominator of what you can believe and still call yourself a Christian. That's the result of the synthesis. Okay, thanks guys, you can sit down. But I want you to remember that illustration. You have the truth, you have anti-truth, and then you have this synthesis of the truth. But here's, and remember, Hegel was the foundation for Marx. Hegel was the foundation for German higher criticism. Really important. Don't think, oh, this is just some old German guy, why do I care? It's, it affects everything because now look at what happened. This is, this is it. Okay, Luke, come back up here. Who's he? Remember, what, what's, who is he? Synthesis. Here's the problem. Now the synthesis is the thesis, the law, the fact. So now what you're going to have is, come up here and help me. Isaac, did I get it right? Isaac, okay. Isaac is the antithesis. All right, so here's the synthesis, which is, well, the Bible is some true, the Bible is some not true. All right, the opposite of that is not only is the Bible not true, it's evil. Okay, because remember, you're always going to keep moving. Right? So now we have to have a new synthesis. Ben, come on up here. I like it because I, hold on, let's make sure. Stink. (laughs) Thought I was taller. Um. So, now we have a new synthesis. Look, here, some true, some false. The Bible's not only false, it's evil. And now, the Bible is some true, some good, some evil. So, what Hegel wanted was a continual, listen, listen to the word, revolution. Have you ever noticed the left's never happy? They're never happy. So it doesn't matter where you get to, they always have to be fighting against something. Why? Because you have the thesis, the antithesis, or the word is actually antithesis, or you have the synthesis. And so that synthesis will always be moving left. It will always be moving farther and farther away from the truth. So here's what happens. Thank you, guys. You can sit down. So here's what happens. We end up with a situation where nobody has any idea what to stand on. What hill do I die on? What doctrine is important? What doctrine is unimportant? I want to give you an example of that synthesis in theology. It's the, just, I'll use one example. Women preachers. Women preachers. Well, the Bible's very clear that women are not supposed to preach. They're not to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in subjection. Let's look at it. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Keep your place in John 2. We're going to come back there. 
We looked at this passage in the Sunday school hour. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and look at verse 11. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer that is allow. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that confusing? Now, is it, is it socially acceptable? Is it culturally acceptable? No. But is it what the Bible says? All right. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Verse 34. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What? Came the word of God out from you? Or came it unto you only? Pretty clear. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that passage confusing? Um, I want to see something. They're almost all monosyllabic words, single-syllable words. Very easy to understand. But here's the problem. You have people that believe, listen, that that's evil. Christians believe that that passage is evil because it leads to the, the diminishing or the abuse of women. How many of you know people that believe that? Right? They believe that that's evil. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. All right. Now, can I ask you all a question? Is that confusing? Is there any room for negotiation? And yet, we have a culture that hates that. So what we end up with are Christians who believe there are good things in the Bible and that there are also evil things in the Bible. This is where this... The, so that process of the thesis and the antithesis and the synthesis, that's called the Hegelian dialectic. And so the, the dialectic, what that always leads to is a conversation. So you have a conversation where you have one side saying one thing and you have another side saying another thing and hopefully we can come to some kind of consensus or some kind of synthesis. Look at Romans chapter 1. So far, nothing that I have said can be disputed. There... There's no opinions involved. You can have your own opinions, but you can't have your own facts, right? Facts are stubborn things. We're just giving facts. Is that fair? As I describe Hegel, 
Anyone who's ever studied philosophy, that's the exact way that it would be described. That is the, that's Hegel's philosophy, and that is the foundation for Marx. It's the foundation for um, Darwin. It's the foundation for German higher criticism. Okay, that's the, These are just facts of history. Now, I want you to see what the Bible says about the dialectical process. All right? So start. let's start reading in verse 15. So as much as is so as much as in me is I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek so it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or not those are the two groups that that God is identifying here you're either Jewish or you're not how many of you are in one of those two groups Okay, And so the gospel is for all of us. That's what the Bible says. Now look at what the Bible says. Verse 17. For therein, that's the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest. It's plain. In them, for God hath showed it unto them. So here's the idea. There's no one who doesn't know the truth. It's a double negative, but there is no one who doesn't know the truth. Everyone knows the truth. Everybody knows right from wrong. Everyone knows good and evil. Now, I say everyone. There are sociopaths that are incapable, right? But, but beyond that, everybody understands what's good. It's wrong in every culture to destroy children. Every culture has. Every culture has a sacrificial system to pay for sin. The righteous, everyone knows righteousness and unrighteousness. Now, specific details of it, you need the Bible. But in general, people know right from wrong. All right? And here's how we know that. Look with me at, keep your place in Romans 1. Look at chapter 2, Romans 2, verse 14. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by, what's it say? Nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean while accusing or excusing one another. And then look at what it says. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So what's going to happen is the everyone in the world knows right from wrong knows good and evil. That's what the Bible just said. And so here's the deal. You don't have to have the law, the Bible, to know good and evil. Is that what the Bible says? So they're without excuse. There's no... What about those who have never heard? Let's go back to chapter 1. Verse 20. For the invisible things of Him... From the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they have many excuses. What's it say? Without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. They worshiped man and to birds 
into four-footed beasts and creeping things. So they started worshiping nature. They started worshiping idols. They started worshiping man rather than God. And here's the God's response to that. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own heart to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie. Now, I want you to see that. Verse 25, that's the Hegelian dialectic. They changed the truth of God into a lie. And worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's very interesting. In, in, in the passage that deals with the Hegelian dialectic, God deals with the, calls Himself the Creator. It's almost like God knew it was going to happen. Then look at what happens. Verse 26. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. That's homosexuality. Even the women. That's that's when it gets so bad, when the women are affected by it. Okay, everybody look up here at me for a minute. If you're in the overflow, please pay attention to this right now. Christianity has elevated the status of women and children. Paganism uses women and children as things to be used and destroyed and bartered with. That's what the world wants to do to your children. This idea... uh, Can I ask you a question? This Harvey Weinstein garbage. How many of you knew that that kind of behavior took place in that industry? How many of you knew that? Everybody does. Now they're acting like they're all outraged by it. So these leftists, how are they treating women? Like things to be used and thrown away. And what they're not telling you about is the pedophilia. How many of you saw the, the, when Roman Polanski, who raped a 12-year-old and fled the country, how he was honored and all the people in Hollywood are so glad to know him. Sick, filthy, wicked animals. The lowest form of life in the world. That's who these people are. They're evil and wicked. Why does every Disney movie need a a, a homosexual in the leading role? Every one of them. Every one of them. Now listen. This is so important that we get this. This is a world system that hates us and hates God and hates everything that's holy. All right? Even the women. That's what the Bible says. Now look at what it says. Verse 27. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly. Now look at And receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. What does that mean? That means that homosexuality destroys your body. That's it. It's not a healthy lifestyle. It's a wicked, horrible lifestyle. Evil. It's evil. Is that what the Bible says? Okay. Now, so here's what happens in verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, don't talk to me about God. I don't want to hear about your God. 
Is that what that industry says? And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder. Oh, what's that word? Everyone, what's that word? Debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. Read that next one out loud. Without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Is that our culture? And I want to point out two things in there. Debate. The reason we went to this text was we're talking about that dialectic where you have one person giving one opinion and another person giving another opinion and they just talk past themselves and you settle down on either side, you listen to the side that you agree with and no one is persuaded. That's debate. God, listen, so important. God did not call us to debate the Word of God. He called us to declare it. This is the truth. This is the truth. If you don't like the truth, I'm sorry for you because it's going to be bad for you. Let's go back to the original illustration. Let your women learn silence with all subjection. We have a culture that thinks it's okay for women to preach. It's not. It's wrong. We have a culture that says that it's wrong to require a woman to submit to her husband. So what you're saying is what God wants you to do is something that's bad for you. So you're more wise than God. Do you see our culture? Man, it gets really quiet. See, on the big, on the big idea of evil and all that, when you've got to tell your wife to submit, honey, can I say amen there? Ladies, the thing that has elevated your station more than anything in the history of the world is biblical Christianity. You're a queen. You're an honored vessel to be cherished, to be kept, to be protected, to be honored, to be exalted. Or we can go back to paganism where you're a thing to be used and thrown away. Which one's better? And yet, I am sure that as soon as I went to those verses, there are some women, your heart is rebelling against all of it. I don't want to. <laughs> and what that is, that's just your sin nature that says, I know better than God. Right? 
So now let's go to my sermon for today, John chapter 2. How did we get here? That's how we got here. What are we going to do about it? John chapter 2. What does Jesus think? John chapter 2 and verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he gathered them together and held hands and sang kumbaya. And said, let the walls come down. Can't we all just get along? These divisions are not healthy and they're bad for self-esteem. Let's read what the Bible says. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And the disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. I want you to notice a couple of things. Number one, I want you to notice the manliness of Jesus Christ. Okay, there's no backpack and Birkenstocks here. How many of you think that Jesus walked into that temple and said, Come on, guys. Stop it. What? This isn't good. How many of you think that's what Jesus Christ did? See, it's hard for us to understand. This is the Passover. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of people in this huge facility called the temple. One man. The best analogy you can use is the mall on Black Friday. Because that's our temple now. Imagine one person making a whip and driving everybody out of, the, out of the whole place. That's what Jesus did. How many of you think Jesus was a dude? That manliness. Guys, young people, you've got to get this. One of the assaults of that Hegelian dialectic is on manliness and womanliness. The femininity of the woman and the masculinity of the man. And I promise you this, Jesus Christ was masculine. I mean, he's breaking rocks for a living. That's what a carpenter was then. This was a man. This was a man. And I want you to notice the manliness. Christianity, is, it's, it's, ama- it's an amazing thing. The most popular man on television, man, man preacher, he talks like this. Most popular woman preacher, she talks like this. Joyce Myers and Joel Osteen. Am I lying? Everything's on its head, man. It's on its head. So I want you to notice the manliness of Jesus. We need preachers that are men. And when a preacher stands up and says things like I have today, it's welcome at Grace Baptist Church, but in the broader culture, what kind of an animal is he? It's called a man. I know you've not seen one in a while, and I know you've not seen a manly preacher in a while, in a while Reverend Alden from Little House on the Prairie. Give me a break. So here's the deal. 
I want you to see his manliness. And then the second thing I want you to notice is his anger. How many of you think he did this with a smile on his face? Go on. Just move ahead. Is that what he's doing? No. See, we have a, we have a concept in Christianity that anger is unbiblical. Well, that means God's a sinner. Because the Bible says God's angry with the wicked every day. There's some things we're supposed to be angry about and wickedness and the attack, the assault on the truth, the attack on our Savior, the attack on what a church is supposed to be. That should raise anger in us. Now, before you get too excited about that, look at verse chapter 2, look at verse 17. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Jesus Christ's anger reminded the disciples of Scripture. He didn't throw a fit. He focused his anger on the place that needed it. Guys, we need to get mad about the right stuff. And we need to display that anger in the right way. It's so important. So I want you to notice a couple of things about this text that will help us to see where we are and what we should do as a church. The first thing that I want you to see is the context. Because the context of what was going on, it informed his zeal. So the Bible says, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. That zeal that Jesus Christ had. And we know what zeal is. It starts at our toes and it works its way up and it just comes out. Men, what would you do? How many of you men have daughters? Would you raise your hands? What would you do if somebody started messing with your daughter in front of you? Would something happen in you? How about it starting right now? Just mentioning it. Right? It's starting right now. That's zeal. That's what I'm talking about. Is that, seriously, think about this with me. Mama bear, anybody here ever turned mama bear? You know what I'm, is that different than anger? Yeah, it's anger with a purpose. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> it's anger with a purpose. It's zeal. It's passion. It's a desire to accomplish something for righteousness. That's what Jesus had. Okay. The context of the passage, it informed his zeal. So look at what it says. John chapter 2, and look at verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So the Passover was the Jewish feast. There were seven Jewish feasts. There were four, uh, uh, three, four spring feasts and three fall feasts. So it starts with Passover. And the Bible, all of these feasts point to Jesus. Now, we need to remember something. For us... Prophecy is prediction. So we understand that, that the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught together to be with the Lord, meet him in the clouds, so shall we ever be with the Lord. All right? And then what's going to happen is seven years of tribulation. And at the end of seven years of tribulation, we all come back with Jesus Christ to the earth. He establishes his kingdom. The judgment of the nations takes place. He rules and reigns for a thousand years. Satan is bound in the pit for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, he is released. And those who haven't trusted Christ during that time, they follow Satan. And God just destroys them. You go right into the great white throne judgment. At the end of the great white throne judgment, death and hell, sin, it's all cast into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels. And then we serve God forever in eternity without sin sin. See, for us, prophecy is prediction. For the Jews, prophecy is pattern. 
prophecy is pattern. Remember, the Jews require a sign, but the Greeks seek after wisdom. For the Jews, the prophecy is pattern, and God gave them patterns in their feasts. All of those Jewish feasts point to the Lord Jesus Christ, all of them. Passover, Jesus Christ is our Passover. The next feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That Feast of Unleavened Bread, so Jesus Christ was crucified on Passover. He was in the grave on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, separated at separation. Jesus was separated from the Father. He was separated from everything in death for you and for me. The next feast is the Feast of First Fruits. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Do you know what happened on the Feast of First Fruits? Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Isn't that wonderful? The next feast is the Feast of Pentecost. And what did Jesus Christ do? He sent the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. He said, It's expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Holy Spirit will not come unto you. But if I go away, He will come unto you. Jesus Christ sent the Holy Spirit on the Feast of Pentecost. The fact that He personally, in His own body, fulfilled the first four feasts is the promise that He will fulfill the next three feasts. Do you know what the next one is? It's the Day of Atonement. That's the day of the national salvation of Israel when they turn to Jesus Christ as their Savior. The next feast is the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's where Jesus Christ tabernacles with His people. It's, it's such a beautiful thing. Let me do this. I forgot one of them. Let me get it right. Feast of Trumpets. That's the return. You've got to have that, right? That's the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And the Bible says they see him whom they've pierced in Zechariah chapter 12. And they mourn over him as their own son. They mourn over that. Zechariah chapter 13, they say the Lord is our God and the Lord says he is our people. That's the day of atonement. Then the Feast of Tabernacles is when Jesus Christ tabernacles or dwells with his people for a thousand years. That is, that's what the prophecy in the pattern was. But not only that, not, listen, it's really important. Not only that. But the temple itself is a prophecy of who Jesus Christ is and what he will do. So the tabernacle prefigured the temple, and the tabernacle and the, te- and the temple, they both prefigure Christ. So that tabernacle in the wilderness, on, on the outside, it was covered in goat skins. It was ugly. On the inside, it was solid gold. That's Jesus Christ. On the outside, there's no beauty or comeliness that when we see him, we would desire him. But on the inside, he's God himself. It all points to him. There's only the door faces the east. So if you want to enter to the presence of God, you have to come through the tribe that camped out at the east, and that's the tribe of Judah. So if you want to enter the presence of God, you've got to come through the lion of the tribe of Judah through the only door. And Jesus Christ said, I am the door. And what I like is there's no exit. Once you're in, you can't get out. Once you got inside the temple, in the outer court, you had the the brazen altar You had the brazen laver, the altars, the altar of sacrifice, and Jesus Christ was a sacrifice for us. That laver, that's where they would do the ceremonial cleansing. And God gave specific dimensions for all of the implements in the temple except the laver. Why? Because His cleansing is limitless. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how sinful you are. His blood can wash you whiter than snow. It all points to Jesus Christ. You go through that veil... And through the veil is the Ark of the Covenant. I've got to say this. Before you get there, there's the table of showbread. On the table of showbread, 
There are 12 loaves of bread, two rows of six, just like your 66 books of the Bible. And Jesus Christ is the bread of the Word of God. He's the bread of life. He came from the city of bread, Bethlehem. It all points to Jesus, the altar of incense. The Bible says His sacrifice was a sweet-smelling incense. It all points to Jesus. That veil was rent in two from top to bottom when Jesus Christ died on the cross, giving us access into the very throne room of God. That's, it all points to Him. That Ark of the Covenant, it is this shittim wood covered in gold, picturing Jesus Christ Himself. And it's called the hypostatic union, that He's 100% God and 100% man without sin. It all points to Jesus. And when God the Father would hover over that mercy seat, that's where the blood was sprinkled. And when God looks inside that Ark of the Covenant, what was in there? The manna. Oh, Jesus Christ is the bread of life. That manna pictured Jesus, the Bible says, but there was also the broken law. There was Aaron's rod that budded. Aaron's rod that budded pointed to Jesus Christ. It was a dead stick that came back to life. It's Jesus Every bit of it points to Jesus. But here's what I love. When God the Father would look down at the broken tablets of the law, He had to see it through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. It all points to Jesus. That's the context. That's the context. You say, Pastor, are you sure? Look at John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and look at verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, (laughs) Is this the weirdest question you've ever seen? What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jews require a sign. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. I come back from preaching somewhere. Pastor Nathan's up here, and they're jamming for the lamb. There, you know, there's, there's booze, there's, you know, because, you know, like guys like Mark Driscoll, they, they say, invite somebody over and brew a beer for Jesus. You know, you have all that kind of stuff going on in Christianity now. And doctrine is being defiled here at Grace Baptist. And I come in and I make a whip and I start running people out. And the deacons, you know, they would allow this, of course. So Ed comes to me and he says, Pastor? What sign are you showing us? How many of you think that would be a weird reaction? <laughs> See, we need, you need to understand the Jewish mind. They knew he was the Messiah while rejecting him. That's the context. The context informed his zeal. But the thing that you need to understand is the corruption inflamed his zeal. So when Jesus Christ got there, I want you to notice something that's amazing. All right, keep your place in John 2. Go to Exodus chapter 11. So this is when Jesus Christ instituted the Passover. So verse 11. And ye shall eat it, that's the Passover feast, and ye shall eat it with your loins girded. That is that, you know, you got the, the robe, the robe's tied up in a belt so that you can move and run. Thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And ye shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. Do you see that? 
Everybody, do you see it? So we're in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. Did I give you the wrong passage? Sorry. That was a synthesis. <laughs> Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the what? Everybody see that? Everybody in the room, you've seen it. It is the what? Go to John chapter 2. Look at verse 13. And the Lord's Passover was at hand. What's it say? It's the Jews' Passover. See, it's no longer the Lord's Passover. It's the Jews' Passover. See, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you know what they were supposed to do? They were supposed to take everything out of their house. They're supposed to sweep their house to make sure there was no leaven in their house because that was corruption. Do you know what they had begun doing? They'd hide little pieces of leaven in the house for the kids to go search out and find. They were hiding Easter eggs. They they had changed the meaning of the Passover. And that made Jesus angry. That made Jesus angry. He came to the temple and everything that happened in the temple, all of those sacrifices in the temple, the very furniture in the temple and the building itself, it all pointed to him. And they had corrupted the message of, of his return because of their corruption in the temple. They'd go in there and you had to use a special kind of currency. And when they would exchange the currency, they'd use exorbitant trade rates, exchange rates. They would, you would bring a pigeon. You would bring some kind of a bird to make your sacrifice because most people couldn't afford a lamb. They'd bring this, remember Jesus Christ family brought birds. They'd bring the bird and they would say, your bird isn't good enough, you have to buy ours, but they'd charge 10 times the value of it. They'd made it a house of merchandise. And remember, those sacrifices were people's... uh, That was people's ability to be in touch with God. And by corrupting that form, they corrupted the message. What Jesus Christ is saying is that when you corrupt the form, you corrupt the message. And that made Jesus so mad, he had to go in and tear it up. But what most people don't know is he did it twice. He did it once at the beginning of his ministry. He did it again at the end of his ministry. Because when you corrupt the form, you corrupt the message. The only way anyone can ever know God is through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You corrupt that form, you corrupt the message. And the Bible says that he was eaten up with zeal for his what? Let's look at it. John chapter 2. Look at verse 17. And his disciples remembered that it was written... The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. He was, look look at chapter, look at the verse before it, middle of the verse. Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. He was eaten up with zeal for his father's house. Is that right? So what was eaten up with zeal for? His father's house. You say, Pastor, this is great. It's good information. What does it have to do with us and with what's going on in the world and people associating with people that have false doctrine? What does this have to do with us? 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 14. 
These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself, in what? Everyone? So we're in 1 Timothy chapter... I did it again to you. I'm sorry. 1 Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 14. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the what? Which is the what? The pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What's that next word? Now, if you have a Bible that doesn't say God there, you might want to ask why. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Without controversy. These are foundational things that we must believe in. And the Bible says that the church of God is now the house of God. Is that what the Bible says? Why is it then that we lack the zeal that Jesus had for His Father's house? Do we have that kind of zeal for the house of God, the church of the living God? When's the last time you got mad over someone changing the doctrine of the New Testament church. See, we're Laodicea. We don't care. Look, keep your place and go to John. I hope you still have John 2, Revelation 3. Revelation 3, verse 15. This is to the church at Laodicea. Jesus says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would, thou art cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. You see, apostasy, that's people rejecting the truth. That makes God angry. But apathy, people not caring about the truth, that makes them sick. And I think that our Christianity, that 21st century Christianity, where people just don't care about the truth, that makes God angry. And so what happens is you have the preacher that stands in the pulpit and says, Thus saith the Lord, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And then we have churches that violate that, whether it's women preachers or a lack of eternal security or not believing in believer's baptism, any of those issues. And we say that a church is wrong when they do those things. And we say, yeah, they love Jesus. They love Jesus. Love for Jesus is not the issue. Jesus said, who's my father and mother? But those that keep my commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my words. Love for Jesus requires obedience. First John says, you say you believe in him, then walk even as he walked. So we understand that what Jesus was angry about, the thing that stirred up his zeal 
was that when you corrupt the form or the picture, you corrupt the message. How many of you know that Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land? Why? Because he got mad and hit the rock with his staff when God told him to speak to it. Is that exactly what happened? Doesn't that seem like a harsh judgment for that? Because the Bible says that Jesus is that rock and he would only be smitten once. The Bible says he tasted death once for every man. God had intended that picture. Moses violated that picture. And God punished him severely for that. When you corrupt the form, you corrupt the message. Again, pastor, what does that have to do with church? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 1. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. What are the ordinances? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's it. Those are the ordinances. They were things ordered by God to be uh, practiced in the church and confirmed by the Apostle Paul. Why the Apostle Paul? Because the Bible says that God revealed the mysteries of the church, which had been hidden from the foundation of the world to Paul. So the Bible says. All right? So now, you say, what are these forms? What are you talking about these forms, these pictures? All right, look at... 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and look at verse 26. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do what? Show the Lord's death till He come. You see, the Lord's Supper is a picture of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. And that that payment was received by God on our account. It is the foundation of the New Testament. Because Jesus said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. And then he shed that blood for us. Baptism is vital. Baptism, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit are we all what? into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. Every person that is born again is baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. This is not water baptism. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. It's a spiritual baptism. We're baptized by one spirit. That's how I know it's a spiritual baptism, because we're baptized by one spirit. That's spiritual. How many of you see the word spirit in spiritual? This is a spiritual baptism. It's not a water baptism. It's a spiritual baptism. Your water baptism, listen, is a picture of that spiritual reality. If you violate the form, you violate the truth. And so if you go and baptize a baby, that baby has made no profession of faith in Jesus Christ. 
That baby has no consciousness of his sin. That baby has no consciousness of his Redeemer. That baby has not called upon the name of the Lord for his salvation. And that baby has not been spiritually baptized into Jesus Christ. If you corrupt the form, you corrupt the message. Do you know how many people have gone to hell because of infant baptism? Do you not care? Do you not care? And yet today we're supposed to unite with people that teach that. There was a man named Jacob Habiger. 1593, he got saved. He was in Switzerland and a man named Kurt Luthi was mending his fence, helping him mend his fence and gave him the gospel and he got saved. Well, the Protestant Reformation had taken place in 1517. And by the way, a week from Sunday, I'm going to preach on the Reformation. I'm going to give you a biblical view of the Reformation on, on the 29th. Reformation Day, the 500th anniversary, is October 31st of this year. 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 thesis to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. But the Protestants had taken over Switzerland. But if you didn't believe in infant baptism, you had to be stopped. And so, in 1593, he was arrested. And he stood before the court and the clergy... And from the Bible, brilliantly defended the truth of believer's baptism and individual soul liberty, salvation by grace through faith. So what they had to do is they had to take him and torture him for three months. Tortured him for three months, Jacob Habiger. So on December 31st, he recanted. That next Friday, that was a Friday, so he was able to go home. That Sunday, his son, listen to the way the account says it, was allowing himself to be baptized. How many babies allow themselves to be baptized? No. So his son was being baptized. He'd made a profession of faith in Christ. There was a traveling preacher that had come through, and he preached. Jacob got up, walked down, and confessed his sin, that he had denied his Lord and denied the truth of the Word of God. Remember, this is to Protestants, not to Catholics, not to Muslims. This is to Protestants. Let me use the right word, Lutherans. He had denied the truth. So he went forward and he asked for, he repented. And that preacher and the other men of the church came around him, put their hands on him and prayed for him and prayed that he could remain steadfast. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not vain in the Lord. Faithfulness marked the rest of his life. But he paid a great price. In 1602, they took two of his daughters and sold them into slavery. Lutherans sold them into slavery. How many of you have daughters? What would that do to you? But he remained steadfast. Would you deny your faith for that? Would you give up your Lord? Would you give up the truth? He remained steadfast. The next thing they did was they burned down his house. In 1604, they arrested his wife, took her to Traxelwald Jail, and in the prison she got typhus and horribly sick for seven months and she died. And he kept preaching the Word of God. Then he was arrested and he was put in Traxelwald Prison. I've been there. I've been to the jail. The cells are still there in Switzerland. You can go and see it. The stocks are still there. The chains are still there. He was kept chained to the wall with his feet in stocks 
with a hole cut in the bottom of the bed so he could go to the bathroom on solid boards for seven years. And listen, that castle, it's up on top of a mountain. And if you look out the window, you can see the Lutheran church right there. But the entire community, because there were no windows. Can you imagine Switzerland in the mountains, imprisoned, with no heat, no warmth, chained to a bed for seven years? But what he would do is he would sing, and he would quote Scripture, and he would preach the gospel, and the entire community could hear it, and they couldn't stop him. After seven years, they released him from the bonds, but kept him in prison for the rest of his life. I think it was 27 or 29 years. But here's what happened. Somebody got him a pencil and some paper, and he wrote tracts that were used in that region of Switzerland for over 100 years to preach the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why was he willing to do that? Because Jacob and his beautiful wife, Anne-Marie, they were eaten up with zeal for their father's house. How many of that story is moving to you? Here's the part that you don't understand. It was all over baptism. You hear what I'm saying? Because when you corrupt the form, you corrupt the message. He remained faithful. There was another man, Michael Sattler, a few years earlier, 1525. He was a part of the Anabaptist movement in Switzerland. And, of course, Zwingli, the Lutheran preacher and leader of Zurich, he hated the Baptists. He had, he had Felix Manns killed. He had Conrad Grable killed. He had George Blaurock killed. He had uh, Balthazar Hubmeyer killed. All these preachers, he just killed them. Evil man. You'll never hear that about Zwingli. He was an evil, wicked man. But he was a Lutheran preacher. But Michael Sattler was a Baptist and believed in individual soul liberty and the separation of church and state and salvation by grace through faith. So he had gone over to Germany to a city called Schleitheim, and they had a meeting of the Anabaptists there. And his sermon became so famous, it came to be known as the Schleitheim Confession of Faith. But as a result of that sermon, at the end of him preaching that sermon, the Roman Catholics took him and they arrested him. They tried him. And his sentence was that he be taken to a place of execution and that his tongue be cut out. Have you ever bitten your tongue? They cut his tongue out. But that's not enough. That he would be pinched five times with red-hot tongs. So they put tongs in the fire, and they would pinch it down on your skin and pull entire chunks of your flesh off. They did that to him five times. And then after that, he was to be taken outside the city walls and burned at the stake. They did all of that to him. For two weeks, they tried to persuade his wife to recant. And when she wouldn't, they killed her also. That Felix Manns that I mentioned, that Felix Manns, 1525 in Switzerland, 1527 is when Zwingli killed him. Here's what Zwingli said. If he wants to be baptized, let him be baptized. So they rode him out into the middle of the Lamat River and put chains on him and threw him in. And then they put his wife in a bag and threw her off the bridge the Lutherans. That's what the Lutherans did in Zwingli, in Zurich, 
under the authority of Zwingli. Based on Zwingli's pronouncement, why was Felix Manns executed? Baptism. Because of baptism. Fifty million people died in the Dark Ages because of believers' baptism. Why? Because when you corrupt the form, you corrupt the message. All the way back at the beginning of this message, I talked about that dialectic. How did we get here? As a result of that German higher criticism and all of the Catholic denomination, all of the Protestant denominations, they were all infected with this liberalism. And so the fundamentalist movement arose. And the fundamentalist movement was holding to the authority of Scripture and certain doctrines. But things like believer's baptism and eternal security, those were called secondary doctrines. Why? Because in the fundamentalist movement, you had Methodists and Anglicans and Episcopals and Lutherans and Presbyterians, and you had all of these different groups that disagree on all of those doctrinal issues, and Baptists just hold to the Bible. There are no outside confessions. There's no outside statement of faith. This is what we believe. And doctrine always divides. As a result of the fundamentalist movement, and then around 1948, the neo-evangelical movement, what we ended up with were interdenominational and non-denominational churches. And baptism, and the Lord's Supper, and church membership, and eternal security, and all of these other issues, they came to be known as secondary issues. And so what we have is we have a Christianity today that is so weak and so pointless and so directionless. We don't know who we are. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what to stand for. We don't know what to fight for. Why was Felix Manns and his wife, why were they willing to die? Believers' baptism and the Lord's Supper. What was the difference in the Lord's Supper? Even Luther... These people, they believed in the real presence of Christ in the communion. Jesus Christ died once. He doesn't die spiritually, or Catholics believe He dies physically in every time you have the Lord's Supper. Right? Lutheran, consubstantiation, believe that He dies spiritually every time you do it. It's called consubstantiation. That's not, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you show the Lord's death. Till you, it's a picture. That's all that it is. The Bible says he tasted death one time for every man. You corrupt the form, you corrupt the message. So Felix Manns and George Blarock and, and Balthazar Hubmeyer and Michael Sattler and all of their wives and their children and Jacob Hobbiger and Anne Marie and their children, they're all willing to die because they were eaten up with zeal for their father's house. And because we have so many uninformed apathetic, lukewarm Christians, it becomes hard for us to stand. But I like what the Bible says, and having done all, stand. That's Grace Baptist Church. That's who we are. I said this in Sunday school. Your failure to be informed doesn't make me a wacko. And what we have are a lot of, just like in, Roman, in, in Revelation chapter 3, we have a lot of know-nothing Christians. They know nothing. They know nothing about doctrine. They know nothing about the Bible. They know nothing about biblical separation. They don't have any idea why a church like us wouldn't participate in some interdenominational movement. 
We don't participate because the Bible says, Come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing, saith the Lord. Somebody believes something wrong on baptism, I'm out. Somebody believes something wrong on the Lord's Supper and teaches it, practices it wrong, I'm out. Somebody teaches something wrong about the New Testament church, about salvation by grace through faith, about male leadership in the church, about any of those things, I am out. Let God be true and every man a liar. That's why we do what we do. Don't you care about souls? We've had hundreds saved through Grace Baptist Church this year. Do you want to know something? Almost every independent Baptist preacher that plants a church anywhere in the world reads Why Baptist, a book published by Grace Baptist Church. Thousands of people are being influenced for the gospel and for the truth of the Word of God because of Grace Baptist Church today, right now. What's the difference? We're doing God's work God's way. Do we hate Catholics? My goodness, no. My mother was a Catholic before she got saved. We love Catholics. Do we hate Lutherans? Only if they're coming at us with a sword to cut our heads off. Of course we don't hate Lutherans. But any Lutheran that preaches the gospel, which is very few, when I first came to Grace Baptist, literally, I'd just gotten here, they're having the Good Friday service, and the Lutheran pastor called me and asked me if I would, wanted to participate in a service, and they were, they were doing the Stations of the Cross. Now, you need to understand something. There are no Stations of the Cross. That's purely Roman Catholic. It was all from a mystic vision of Constantine's mother, not from the Bible at all. And so they wanted me, he asked me if I would preach one of the Stations of the Cross. And I said, um, I said, are people saved at this event? Listen, word for word. Well, that's not really what this event is for. Did I go and preach there? No. No. Why don't we participate in things like that? Because we're just going to keep doing what God told us to do. Amen? We're going to stand for the truth because we are eaten up with zeal for our Father's house. Amen? If you have any questions about any of this, I would be glad to answer them. I'd be glad to answer them. I'll say one last thing. It may sound self-serving. But if you have some Christian in this community that thinks that we are ignorant... Because of our stands, tell them come talk to me. You can call us a lot of things, but ignorance is not one of them. Amen? We have the truth. We have the truth. We need to... The Bible says, buy the truth and sell it not. We're not going to sell it, folks. We're not for sale. We're going to stand on the truth of the Word of God. Amen? Let's all stand. Dear Heavenly Father... This world is such a mess. And Lord, there are so many true and sincere believers that are involved in movements that violate your word. And Lord, we don't hate those people. We love them. Lord, we're thankful for anyone that wants to work for you. But we just believe that your work has to be done your way. Lord, your gospel is so important. Your ordinances are to be kept. 
because they teach the truth. Lord, help us to be eaten up with zeal for our Father's house. Everybody look up here at me for a minute. Would you get your Bibles and look at two more passages? Get your Bibles and look at two more passages. Titus chapter 2. Of course, Titus is another of the pastoral epistles where the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is teaching his young man, Titus, how to be a pastor. And he says this, verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. So what does grace do? Grace teaches us to be holy and righteous. Is that what the Bible says? teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Why? Because we're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God. Everybody's great God. But He's our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity. How many of you are thankful that you're redeemed from all iniquity? Amen. Amen. All of it. It's washed away. That labor, it's limitless. Right? Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. What's that next word? Zealous Zealous of good works. Now, let me see if I have obeyed the command of Scripture today. Look at the next verse. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. That's what we're supposed to do. But the Laodicean church is so cold and so dead and so apathetic, they won't receive it. Revelation chapter 3, here's what Jesus said to do. Revelation 3, verse 19. As many as I love... I rebuke and chasten. Be what? Zealous, Zealous, therefore, and what? Repent. I wonder how many of us are zealous for our Father's house. Mama bears? How many of you knew what I was talking about? You ever feel that way about the church? Dads with daughters? How many of you knew what I was talking about? You ever feel that way about the church? Or is it? Eh, that's his opinion. Eh, I don't care. Do you know what Jesus would say to you right now? Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Do you know what the next verse is there in Revelation? What's Jesus doing? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's talking to a church, and he's outside the church. Let that never be said of Grace Baptist Church. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. How many of you would say that you needed this challenge today about biblical doctrine and your zeal for the house of God? Folks, we need to leave here on fire for God. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Amen? The Bible says that no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this world. Why? Because he wants to be a good soldier. Zeal. Eaten up with zeal for our Father's house. Folks, we need to be zealous about truth. 
these are not insignificant issues. If you're not saved today, the most important decision you'll ever make is to call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. If you got baptized as a baby, all that did was make you wet. You must be born again. And if you're here and you found yourself apathetic about the truth, you need to repent. As your pastor, the Bible tells me to rebuke you, exhort you to do it right, teach you the truth. It's your job to repent. Well, my personality, I just don't get... God knew your personality when He told you to be zealous. Amen? Amen. Zeal for our Father's house. Let's sing this together.